You've probably heard it said or have had someone say to you that the church is full of hypocrites. In my experience, this oft-quoted accusation is usually offered by the unchurched and the de-churched as a reason why they don't attend worship. It's often an expression of millennial angst spoken by someone who was raised in a fundamentalist church context who had a negative experience when their own evolving views of ethics and morality began to deviate from those held by the church from whence they came. The expression is usually backed by stories of people they know who are hateful, angry church members who enjoy condemning the sins of the world while secretly nursing their own acceptable sins. Those who make such accusations will often claim that those on the receiving end of the church's condemnations, homosexuals and atheists and the like, are nicer and more loving and more accepting and typically closer to the Jesus that they imagine in their minds than those who actually call themselves Christians. And to prove their point, they will invariably quote from Matthew chapter 7, from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, they will say, Jesus never judged anyone, and he didn't want us to judge others either. Well, yes and no. The same Jesus, whom such people imagine to be the guru of tolerance, just a few verses later says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. That doesn't sound very tolerant. It sounds, in fact, quite narrow. So there's something further going on here. I'm rather ambivalent towards the statement that the church is full of hypocrites. On the one hand, I think it's a smokescreen for those whose hearts are in rebellion against God, those who would rather live dissolute and debauched lives, yet they want to shift the blame for their rebellion to the hypothetical hypocrites because it's easier to blame someone else for your depravity so you don't have to take responsibility for your own unbelief. It's easier to blame someone else for your sin rather than to admit that you don't come to church because in actuality you don't love God and you don't love His Word and you aren't a follower of His Son. In other words, blaming the so-called hypocrites allows you to continue in sin while not taking responsibility for your own lack of faith. 
But on the other hand, the charge of hypocrisy is not totally unfounded. Indeed, hypocrisy is a danger that is inherent to every church. All of us are prone to formality. We are prone to divorcing the external from the internal and thus making righteousness a matter of outward appearance apart from inward affection. Hypocrisy was the besetting sins of the besetting sin rather of the Pharisees and Jesus condemned them for it. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus charged the Pharisees with seven indictments of hypocrisy, each accented with the refrain, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. In each of these indictments, Jesus accuses them for for separating what ought never be separated, namely external action from internal affection. He accuses them of cleaning the outside of the cup while leaving the inside stained with greed and self-indulgence. He accuses them of being whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but inwardly are full of death. Notice the separation of the external and the internal, and the fact that the Pharisees' focal point was on external things. This is the essence of hypocrisy. It is, as Paul described it in 2 Timothy 3.5, having the appearance of godliness, but denying the power thereof. That is why we must stress the inward affections as much as the outward actions. Both are essential components of true New Covenant Christianity. Which is exactly why Jesus told Nicodemus the Pharisee that even though he was a teacher of Israel, he must be born again or he would neither see nor enter the kingdom of God. And that's why I stress to you that having right doctrine and right living is not enough. You must have true and right affections for God, born of the Spirit. Hypocrisy is a deadly disease of the heart and of the eye. It blinds the eye to the reality of sin and judgment, and it causes the heart to swell with self-righteous pride. And as we will see, it is of all spiritual diseases most terminal because there is nothing, hear me, there is nothing that God despises more than a hypocrite. In a very real sense, this morning's message is Part two of the sermon that I preached a couple of weeks ago on homosexuality and the church. And I said in that sermon that there is a very real sense in which the church has abdicated its moral authority to speak on the sanctity of marriage when it refuses to address violations of marriage which arise from rampant and unlawful divorce in its own ranks. And there's a very real sense in which the church has abdicated its moral authority to speak on the issue of sexual morality when it refuses to address and discipline sexual immorality and cohabitation within its own ranks. 
there's a very real sense in which the church has no right to speak to the world about its immorality until we set our own house in order. Now, what I was emphasizing is that the church cannot condemn homosexuality from a posture of hypocrisy. It can only speak legitimately and truthfully to the issue of homosexuality from a posture of humility. A humility which understands and affirms what we confess this morning in song. Namely, that all of us have sinned, that all of us are broken, that all of us stand underneath the wrath of God, and that the only hope for any of us is the righteousness of Christ revealed apart from the law and received through faith alone. So having explored the depths of depravity over to which God has given the pagan, godless, unbelieving world in Romans 1, 18 to 32, now, beginning in chapter 2, Paul sets his sights upon the religious and the moral in order to prove that they are just as guilty of the very same practices, are underneath the very same wrath, and are therefore in need of the very same gospel. So this morning's sermon is not about the world. This morning's sermon is about the church. And it's a warning to the church. And my prayer has been that God would use it to convict us of hypocrisy and to cultivate within us a spirit of humility. In this text, Paul indicts the hypocrite and he charges him with hypocrisy and he argues his case against him. But before we can get to the indictment, we must establish the identity of the hypocrite. Who is Paul talking about in this passage? Who does Paul have in the dock, so to speak, in this text? Well, look at verses 1 through 3. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? I want you to notice two things in those first three verses. First, I want you to notice that Paul's argument in verses one and following is connected to what has come before. It's connected to our previous sermons from chapter one by the presence of the word, therefore. Okay, Therefore is drawing an inference or a conclusion from what has been previously stated. So there's a connection between chapter two and chapter one that we shouldn't miss. On the other hand, Paul is changing courses and he is addressing a different group of people than those he indicted at the end of chapter 1. And this is evident from the fact that he switches from the third person plural. He's no longer going to be talking about they and them. And he's going to be switching to the second person singular, you, O man. So he's changing the target of his indictment, the subject of his indictment. 
What this means is what what we have here in this text, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 1, is a new indictment against a new group of people, but one that is very closely connected to the indictment that came before in the second half of Romans chapter 1. So to use the legal metaphor, Paul is acting as the prosecuting attorney, and he's trying multiple defendants in a related case. God, in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, is indicting all humanity and is charging them with treason. And Paul, in these chapters, is acting as God's prosecuting attorney. Here's how I think it works. I want you to turn back to Romans 1 with me, and I'm going to show you how Paul's case progresses against mankind. In Romans 1, 18 and 19, Paul wrote that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Notice that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. That is, all forms of it. The pagan form and the religious form. The debauched, immoral form and the self-righteous form. God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth of God which they know. But there's more than one way to know the truth of God, and there is more than one way to suppress that truth. In chapter 1, verses 20 to 32, Paul focused upon the pagan Gentiles who know the truth of God through creation and therefore are without excuse, verse 20, yet they suppress that truth and they exchange the glory of God for idols. Therefore, says Paul, God has given them over to increasing degrees of depravity, to sexual immorality, verse 24, to homosexuality, verses 26 and 27, and to the entire cesspool of sin described in verses 28 to 32. But there's another way to know the truth of God, and there's another way to suppress the truth of God. So after setting his sights on the pagan, heathen world of the Gentiles, Paul now turns to the religious Jews, whom he accuses of hypocrisy in judging and condemning the pagans of chapter 1 and condemning them when Paul says they're guilty of the very same sins, the very same things. Well, again, I would remind you that there is more than one way to know God, and there is more than one way to suppress that knowledge in unrighteousness. The pagans know God by his work of creation, and they suppress that knowledge by inventing false religions, idolatry. The Jews, in chapter 2, know God by his word of revelation. They have a Bible, but they have suppressed that knowledge and they've perverted true religion into hypocrisy. 
The link between the two groups, chapter 1 and chapter 2, is the knowledge of God. They both know God. And they both suppress the truth of God, which they know, which means that both of them, Paul uses exactly the same word, are without excuse in the judgment of God. The pagans exchange the worship of the true God for idols. The Jews, as we will see, exchange the true worship of God in spirit and truth for an external moralism which resulted in outward obedience without inward affection. And this is where First Baptist Nixa enters the text. Paul doesn't have us in mind in the second half of chapter 1. You cannot be a member of this church and worship idols. It's not going to happen. You can't be a member of this church and have a household altar that you place fruit before and produce and you burn incense to in the corner of your living room. You cannot be a member of this church and practice sexual immorality. You cannot be a member of this church and practice homosexuality. You cannot be a member of this church and practice the sins of verses 29 to 31, not only practicing them, but giving approval to those who do likewise. You can't do that. That's, you cannot be a member of a New Testament church and embrace and approve of sin. That's why we have membership interviews. That's why we have a membership process. That's why we practice church discipline. If you're one of the people that Paul is condemning in the second half of Romans 1, you're not going to make it through the membership process. Because the people that Paul identifies in Romans chapter 1 are those who have embraced a lifestyle of sin that is antithetical to the reign of Christ. They approve of it, they embrace it, they walk in it, and they love it when others do likewise. But, you can be a member of this church, have the outside of your cup nice and clean, yet be inwardly filthy, and no one would ever know. You can be a member of this church and sit in self-righteous judgment upon them, those people out in the world who do the kind of stuff that Paul mentions in Romans 1, and nobody would be the wiser. Why? Because you say all the right things. You do all the right things, and no one can look on your heart. So who is the hypocrite of Romans 2, 1 through 5? Primarily, I think Paul has in mind Jews as opposed to the pagan Gentiles of chapter 1. But by extension, I think Paul has in mind the church. Those who, like the Jews... Know God by special revelation. We have a Bible. We don't just know God 
through creation, through what he has made. We know God through what he has spoken, through what he has written. Yet we too can all too easily suppress that truth and construct in its place a false and formal religion of external righteousness and inward hypocrisy. So we, First Baptist Nixa, we need to take heed this morning because if I'm reading Jesus right, and I am, humbly, severer punishment awaits those who are found in chapter 2 than those who are found in chapter 1. That's why Jesus, speaking to the Galilean Jews in Capernaum, told them it was going to be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for them. God hates hypocrisy. The second question needs to be answered before we can get to Paul's argument. With what crime is Paul charging the Jews and by extension the formal church? How can religious Jews be said twice? Paul says it twice. How can they be said to practice the very same things as those they sit in judgment over? In other words, the pagan Gentiles of chapter 1. Look what he says, verses 1 through 3. Let's read it one more time. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So my question is, as I was reading through this text, how can it be said that religious persons, mainly Jews in this passage, who are passing moral judgment on the pagan Gentiles who surround them are practicing the very same sins? What sins? The sins of chapter 1, the sins of idolatry, immorality, homosexuality. Is Paul suggesting that the Jews in the synagogues are practicing the very same things that the pagans are in their pagan temples? No, I don't think that's the case. I don't think that there are Jews in the synagogue bowing down before idols. I don't think there are Jews in the synagogue doing what ought not be done with male cultic prostitutes. It would be the grossest hypocrisy for the Jews to condemn the pagan Gentiles for their immorality and homosexuality and then engage in immorality and homosexuality themselves. Even pagans recognize such hypocrisy and condemn it. I don't think that's what Paul is alluding to. I don't think that there was such blatant external immorality taking place within the Jewish synagogue or taking place within the Roman church for that matter. Rather, I think there are two things going on in these verses. First, if you'll notice the list of sins that Paul mentions last in verses 29 to 31, he's dealt with idolatry, he's dealt with immorality, he's dealt with homosexuality, and then he throws out like 18 
sins that, in, that describe the pagan Gentile world, many of them are internal in nature. Paul says in 129, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness. Paul condemns himself of covetousness in Romans chapter 7. Malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Those kind of sins which are of the heart, which are internal in nature, they could just as easily be found in the synagogue or in the church as they could in the world. So when Paul points his fingers at the religious and outwardly moral, whether in the synagogue of the first century or the church of the 21st century, and he accuses them of practicing the very same sins which they condemn in others, he could be thinking internally. He could be thinking of such sins as pride, envy, maliciousness, covetousness, and the like. On the other hand, and this is where I lean, Paul could be thinking in terms of essential moral categories. You remember that Paul accused the, Ro- or the pagan Gentiles of making idols after the image of created things and worshiping them rather than the creator. Verses 23 and 25. Paul accused the Gentiles of dishonoring their bodies through sexual immorality. Verse 24. Paul accused the pagan Gentiles of violating nature itself by engaging in homosexuality, verses 26 and 27. Now ask yourself this question. Were not unbelieving Jews also idolaters? Though they did not fashion idols out of wood and stone, had they not made money an idol? Had they not made the praise of men an idol? Had they not worshipped their own law-keeping, their own self-righteous morality? Indeed, they had. I think Paul is pointing at the Jews and saying, you are just as guilty of idolatry as the pagans. You worship your own law-keeping, your own morality. In the end, you worship yourselves. You trust in yourselves rather than worshiping and trusting in God. Though the Jews did not engage in overt acts of sexual immorality or homosexuality, were they not guilty of defiling the holy covenant of marriage all the same by their unlawful divorces and their ungodly, unhappy marriages? Indeed they were. Jesus condemns them for this in Mark chapter 10. I think Paul is pointing at the Jews in this passage and he's saying, you are just as guilty of transgressing the covenant of marriage as are the pagans. You don't love your wives as Christ has loved the church. You don't cherish her or nurture her or sacrifice for, your, for yourself for her in order to sanctify her. This text, in other words, strikes us right between the eyes. How can we possibly condemn the pagans outside of the church, them, they who are out in the world, 
for what they do when we don't tend to our own house? How can we possibly judge the pagans for their idolatry when we too worship the creature rather than the creator? Worshiping money or comfort or family or entertainment or reputation or the American dream. How can we possibly judge the pagans for their immorality and their homosexuality when we refuse to judge ourselves for our own violations and perversions of the holy sexual union within the holy covenant of marriage. To condemn homosexuality yet not condemn unlawful divorce is hypocrisy. Both are violations of the covenant of marriage. Until the church... Let's get specific. Until this church is prepared to stand up to the man or woman within our ranks who wants to put away his or her spouse and marry another and say, you cannot do that. Or until we are willing to stand up to the unmarried couple within our ranks who starts to live together and say, you cannot do that. We have no moral authority to stand up to the homosexual outside the church and say, you cannot do that. A hypocrite, the Greek term is hypocrites. It it was used of stage actors who wore a mask to conceal their true identity in order for them to play a role. A hypocrite is someone who puts on a mask, takes on a persona that does not truly reflect who they are. So when Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites, he was accusing them of playing a part on a stage. And that's exactly what Paul is addressing in this text. It is all too easy to make this church a stage, to put on a mask of righteousness, to adopt a persona of holiness and thus conceal the evil, the lust, the anger, and the idolatry that resides within. So we need to take heed, beloved, that Paul in Romans 2, 1 through 5 isn't talking about us. Now, we've seen that Paul is charging the Jews with hypocrisy. We've seen what that hypocrisy entails. Now we can see how he prosecutes his case. There are three essential components to Paul's argument. First, Paul is going to argue on the basis of the inconsistency of their own judgment. Second, he'll argue on the basis of the impartiality of God's judgment. And thirdly, he'll argue on the basis of their impudence and their presumption. So the first plank of Paul's argument is based on the inconsistency of the Jews' judgment upon the pagan Gentiles. He says in verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, are practicing the very same things that they are. Paul argues that the Jews who sit in their synagogues on their self-righteous thrones and point their moralistic fingers at the depravity of the pagans are, in essence, self-condemned. 
For in judging and condemning the idolatry of others, they condemn themselves for the idols of their own heart. In judging and condemning them for their sexual sins, they are condemning themselves for their own distortions of the holy sexual union. Paul seems to be basing his charge of inconsistency and self-condemnation on those words of Jesus that we read earlier when he said, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Whatever standard of judgment you erect with which to judge them, those who are outside the walls of the church, with that same standard, God will judge you. So if we're going to examine and condemn the world for their idolatries and immoralities and distortions of God's creative and covenantal designs, we had better be ready for God to examine us for the same. Now, lest you misunderstand me, I need to quickly add that the proper response to this warning is not to say, well then, we'll just not speak about their sins and their perversions, lest we not be judged for ours. No, that would be the wrong application. This is not a call to silence. This is a call to self-examination. This is a call to consistency in the application of the truth. If we're going to apply the standard of God's creative and covenantal designs to others, we had better apply the same standard to ourselves. Not only externally, but internally where it matters most. Second, Paul argues against the religious and moral hypocrisy on the basis of the impartiality of God's justice. The argument goes like this, God will rightly, he says, he will rightly judge the pagans who practice the things that Paul outlined in chapter 1. Paul assumes that his audience agrees with this. Yes, God is going to judge them and his judgment of them will be right. We're all on the same board as far as that goes. We're all in agreement. Second, here comes the kicker, Paul says, but you are guilty of the very same things as them. Therefore, if it's right for God to judge them for their idolatries and their immoralities and their iniquity, guess what? It's right for him to judge you for your idolatries and immoralities and iniquities. Self-righteous judgmental moralism is just as deadly, in fact it is more deadly than pagan immorality because God is an impartial judge who judges not only the outward actions of the body, he judges the inward affections of the heart and judges on the basis of one's access to revelation such that to whom much is given, much will be required. Hypocrisy is vain because though others cannot see behind the mask that you wear, God can and God does, and God is going to judge the real you, not the you that you show to other people. 
For God shows no partiality. Romans 2.11 On that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Verse 16 So let us sit up and take heed because one day God the impartial judge will judge all of our secret thoughts and our inward affections and he will reveal whether or not those affections are Godward or not. And he is not inconsistent in his application of justice and there is no impartiality with him. You cannot fool God. Finally, verses 4 and 5, Paul argues against the sheer arrogance. I needed an I word, so I used the word impudence. Thank God for thesauruses. Of self-righteous hypocrisy. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So how different is the judgment of the hypocrite from the judgment of God? The Jews of whom Paul spoke imagined themselves to be in a special saving relationship to God. And it was from this place of false security that their indignation toward and their disdain for the pagan Gentiles arose. So you've got to ask yourself, on what basis did the Jews think that they enjoyed a special relationship to God such that God judged others as being guilty but not them? Well, it was based upon two presumptions. First, They presumed that they were God's special people on the basis of their birth. That is, on the basis of their ethnic identity as Israelites. We are God's elect people, unlike them, those pagan Gentiles. Well, Paul's not going to allow them to presume this for long. He's going to destroy this presumption a little bit later in Romans chapter 2, verse 28, when he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, not by the letter, and his praise is not from man, but from God. It is true that for a time, under the old covenant, being ethnically Jewish placed one in a special relationship to God in a nationalistic sense. But listen to me closely. Being Jewish never placed one in a saving relationship to God because salvation has always been by faith alone. As Paul will argue extensively in Romans chapter 4 and elsewhere, Jews are not saved on the basis of their ethnicity any more than Gentiles are excluded on the basis of their ethnicity. So take that and apply it to yourself. You cannot cannot presume to be in special saving relationship to God on the basis of external pedigree, on the basis of the faith of your family, on the basis of your church membership, on the basis of anything external. Salvation is and has always been through faith and faith alone. 
Second, they presumed that they were God's special people on the basis of their external adherence to the law. They thought we are God's people because he has given to us the law to obey. Well, Paul's going to destroy this presumption in verse 12 of chapter 2. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. And the Jews, says Paul, have not kept the law that they've been given, not in righteousness, not from the heart. Their outward actions may be moral, like the rich young ruler, but their inward affections are wicked and far from him. They are not God's special people because they have the law. In fact, Paul will say they are only more accountable to God because they've been given the law. And so Paul accuses them of presuming upon the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. To Paul, who does not deny the special place occupied by Israel in redemptive history, he will will hammer that home in in the beginning of chapter 3, in chapter 9, in chapter 11. For a Jew to look upon the history of God's dealings with Israel, to, to look upon the extremities of God's patience, which he has shown in the face of Israel's continued faithlessness and disobedience, and then to presume to be in special saving relationship to God, while at the same time condemning the pagan Gentiles for their sin, according to Paul, is the height of presumptive arrogance. Paul says, at what point in your history were you ever morally superior to the pagan Gentiles? Have you not read your Old Testaments? The Old Testament is not a story of your faithfulness to God. It's a story of God's kindness and patience towards you. And for you to judge them for the very same things that you commit, maybe not externally, but certainly internally, is to despise the riches of God's kindness and patience, which he has shown you for millennia. God forbid that First Baptist Nixa be guilty of the same kind of presumption. So let's be clear. No one of us stands in special relationship to God on the basis of birth, pedigree, or any external religious or moral works. On the contrary, you must be born again. The fact is that God demands a perfect righteousness. He demands a righteousness which consists not merely in external action, but in internal affection. Listen to me very closely. God demands righteousness from you, not only in deed, He demands righteous desires. And that's something you cannot do. It is something that your evil heart cannot produce of itself. Which means that you and I stand in fundamentally the same position as do those Paul spoke of in Romans 1, including homosexuals that we spoke of two weeks ago. Both of us, 
the homosexual, and myself stand in need of a righteousness defined as deeds and desires, actions and affections that neither one of us can produce of ourselves. That's why we both stand equally in need of the gospel of Christ, in which a righteousness is revealed apart from the law through faith and through which the Spirit comes to regenerate and renew our hearts with new desires and new affections that now can please God. So the church's answer to the dilemma of homosexuality is not to call evil good or the unnatural natural. But neither is the church's answer to adopt an us and and them mentality which condemns them for the very same sins which inwardly, at least, we are guilty of ourselves. Rather, the church's answer is to approach the issue of sin from a posture of humility, to love the broken and sinful because we too know what it's like to be broken and sinful, to cling to the righteousness of Christ received by faith and to trust in the power of the Spirit to regenerate and renew and to implore others to do the same. That's the answer to the sin which is degenerating the culture around us. The world may call us narrow or bigoted because of our our unyielding stance which we take on the sinfulness of homosexuality and our insistence upon the happiness and the holiness of God's creative and covenantal design. They may call us narrow, they may call us bigoted, but may they never rightly call us hypocritical because we judge others with a different standard than we judge ourselves. This morning, we're going to have a God-given, God-ordained opportunity to express our humility, our sin, our brokenness, and our need for the righteousness of Christ alone by coming to the Lord's table. When you come to this table and you take of the bread and you take of the cup, you are confessing publicly and personally that you are a broken sinner in need of grace. So listen to me very closely. If you don't know that that's true of you, don't come. You are confessing when you come to the Lord's table that your affections are disordered and that the power of righteousness, deed and desire, action and affection, does not reside within you. You are confessing that you need this body of Christ. You need this blood of Christ for the atonement for your sins and that you need the promise of the new covenant of the Spirit who will come to renew your affections. The Lord's table is not for the proud. It is a table for the humble. It is not a table for the self-righteous. It is a table for sinners. Neither, however... Is it a table for the presumptuous and the unrepentant? It is a table for those who have repented of their sin and are trusting in Christ for both the pardon for sin and the power for obedience. In other words, both the unrepentant and proud homosexual and the unrepentant and proud hypocrite, both are excluded from the Lord's table. You cannot come. But 
both the believer who struggles against same-sex attraction and the believer who struggles against self-righteousness are both welcome. Indeed, they ought to come, and they ought to come together, and together they ought to confess their joint need of the grace and the power and the blood of Christ. Take a moment, and I want you to make sure that your heart can confess what your actions are getting ready to proclaim, so that your heart is willing and able to confess, I have no righteousness apart from Jesus. I am full of sin that I need the blood of Christ to atone for. I need Jesus or I'm lost. Make sure that your heart can declare that because that's exactly what you're going to declare when you come to the Lord's table. And lest you come to the table as a hypocrite, both your inward confession and your outward confession need to match. So if that is indeed your confession, come and receive from the Lord the promise that his grace is sufficient to atone for your every sin and that he has sent forth his spirit to renew your affections and to renew your actions, and to make you into a new creation.